0: It's always a beautiful day to be with uh, to be with our brethren and to, to spend some time in the Word of God and and to uh, to study the Scriptures, which is something that really opens our hearts to the knowledge of God. You know, there's um there's a lot of things that we do. You know, we often do it alone. Uh, you brush your teeth by yourself. You get dressed alone. Um, you drive the car alone most of the time. Unless you have somebody that continues to tell you how fast you're going. But there is something that we're going to discover today that we don't do alone. As Christians, we will find out today that we don't pray alone. We don't pray alone. And having said that, let's open the word of prayer. Father, we thank you, dear Lord, for the word of God. We thank you, dear Father, for the work that it does within our own hearts. We thank you, dear Lord, that it lightens our eyes and it it gives us that food to eat, dear Lord, that, um, that is unlike anything that we have ever had before in our lives. And I pray, dear Lord, that as we digest the wonderful truth of the Scriptures, Father, that we would grow. That we would come to the knowledge more of who you are. That we would come to the understanding of our own state. The joy that we have in Christ. The wonder that we will look forward to in heaven. The hope that we have in every sense of the word. And I pray, dear Lord, that we could shine in a dark place, that our light would so shine, that indeed it would draw all men to you. We pray, dear Father, this thing, dear Lord, this day. We ask, dear Lord, that you'll be with us. Open the eyes of our understanding, Father, and help us rejoice in the wonderful truth of who you are and the work that you do. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I was, um, I was having a look. This is the 8th. 7th? 8th, 7th, I think it's the 7th sermon in chapter 8 that's not bad, there's a few more to go Um, there's been 30 sermons so far in the book of Romans that I've gone through I really hope it's been as much of a it's not possible that it could be as much of a blessing to you as it has been for me but it's been such a joy to go through this book and there's so much there you know, have you recognised that? Have you realised how much is in this book? I mean, I guess that's just the infinite uh, characteristic of the Word of God. You know, there's so much. There's so many different topics. There's so many different things that we can really grow with and and come to understand. So if you have your Bibles with you, please open to the book of Romans. We're in chapter 8. We're going to continue on. But we'll read from verse 22 just to make sure that we've got this in context. Verse 22, chapter 8, it says, For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth in pain together until now. And not only they, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. For we are saved by hope, but hope that is seen is not hope. For what a man seeth, why doth he yet hope for? But if we hope for that we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. And he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. Amen. So we have several points to get through this morning. Um, The first one is that we have infirmities assisted. Infirmities assisted. The second point is ignorance interceded. The third one is inclination known. Inclination known. The fourth, an intervention of accord. An intervention of accord. And the fifth one is the Christian never prays alone. That's the last point. Infirmities assisted. We've got an interesting word here that sets our context. And the, and the portion of the text is the first verse in uh, chapter, chapter 8, or first portion of uh, verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. As with all Scripture, you can't take it out of its context. And the word likewise sets the context. Okay, it's an adverb, but it's also a conjunction in a a sort of form. It joins what's gone before to what's coming after, but it also adds something more to it. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity. So the context of the passage that we're speaking about is that portion that speaks about eternity, that portion that speaks about the adoption to with the redemption of our bodies, that state that we're going to be in in eternity that we're looking forward to. And it links to that hope. Remember, it's that hope, uh, for if we hope for that, we see not, then do we with patience wait for it. Linked in with patience likewise, or in like manner, or in the same way, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. So not only do we have hope that we can look forward to, but we also have the help of the Spirit of God, helping our own infirmities. So hope helps us to live this life in patience and the Spirit also helpeth our infirmity. Infirmities. Infirmity. It's really good, you know, it's really good to know that something's helping our infirmity but it's difficult to know what it is that infirmity refers to if you don't know what the meaning is. So, we're going to do a word study. Now, I do a word study probably a little bit different to a lot of people. Um, When you read your Bible and you come across a particular word, my concern is what does the word mean? But my concern, moreover, is what does the word mean according to God? What does He mean when He put that word in there? And in the authorised version of the Bible, we've got something very, very unique. And it's recognised as unique as far as English translations are concerned. Within this book, you have a built-in dictionary. Within it is a dictionary. It's built in. And looking at how God uses the word is how we want to understand the word. Now, like any good dictionary, every word is defined by its use. Okay? So whenever you're opening up a dictionary, you see it's defined by its use. It gives you a broad range of meaning, and that meaning is always put in the context of how it's being used. So, whether you've got an a, a exhaustive concordance, which is a really big book, and it's got every single word of the Bible and where it's found, and there's 12,500 individual unique words, um, it shows you exactly where they're all located. Or you can use a smart search on your iPhone. So if you've got a phone, a smartphone, you can do a search on a word, and it'll come up with everywhere that word is actually found in the Scriptures. Now, there's a reason why an original language search will lead you astray. And I'm not going to go into that now, but having 400 plus versions in the English language alone should tell you that it's not a precise method to employ. Okay? That alone should tell you that it's not a precise science to employ using the original languages. We believe we have the Word of God we don't think that God's got a problem with language and the authorised version of the scriptures has this unique ability and it's recognised, it's known. So I've gone through it and I've actually discovered that the word infirmity appears 22 times only in the scriptures. I'm not going to go through all of them. But just to give you a bit of an understanding on its broad range of meaning. Um, infirmity refers to uncleanness in Leviticus 12.2. 12, 12, it's a troubled heart in Psalm 77. An explanation of grief Or sorrow in Matthew chapter 8, 17. You can refer to Isaiah chapter chapter 53 where he says, Surely he hath borne our grief and carried our sorrows. It's that which can be physically healed and cured in Luke 15, chapter 7, chapter 8. Sickness or unwellness in 1 Timothy chapter 5. It's a spiritual malady that also has a physical effect in Luke chapter 13. It's that which leaves us less than whole, John chapter 5, uh, to those that are weak in their faith, Romans chapter 15. And it refers to general personal shortcomings, maladies, temptations and trials in 2 Corinthians 11, 12, uh, Galatians 4, Hebrews chapter 4. And it also refers to sin in Hebrews chapter 5. What we can be encouraged by is the text here tells us that likewise the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. We have, a, we have a helper with the Spirit of God. Whatever the shortcomings are within your life, whether it's sin or it's a physical malady or it's something that you're, that you're not aware of or, or struggle with or any shortcoming that you have within your life, we know that the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. He's a, he's a helper. just important to know that the spirit doesn't do it alone okay a helper is not someone that actually does it on their own it's like um it's like somebody else carrying the other part of a heavy weight you know you do it together the spirit doesn't do it on his own he cannot do it without you the spirit helpeth he's our helper and he helps our infirmities Now the Spirit of God actually does an incredible amount of things. Right through Scripture, you see what He does. Um, These are some of the things that I brought out from the Word of God as far as the Spirit goes. He convicts the heart. He, He quickens us to life. He guarantees our inheritance. He conforms us to Christ. He enlightens our eyes, renews our mind, comforts our fears, rests our hearts. He teaches our souls. He is the one that imparts wisdom, that increases our faith. He rejoices in God and he grieves our sin. This is some of the aspects of the Spirit of God. And it's that self-same spirit that imparts and distributes gifts to the church and to the members of Christ. He rejoices in God, as we said. He also authored the very words of God. He is the one that's given to us that helps us discern error. When you hear something that's false, you have an immediate discernment from the Spirit of God, and that's given by the Spirit of God, encouraging you to check what it is that you've heard, what, you, what you've what you listened to. And here, he desires to help us in prayer. So it's certain that we cannot pray in our own strength. We understand that as Christians. We can't really pray in our own strength. But if we never set ourselves to pray, he that has strength cannot help. If we don't set ourselves to pray, he that has strength can't help second point is that we have ignorance that's interceded. On um, verse 26, again, he says, Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought, but the Spirit itself maketh intercession for us with groanings which cannot be uttered. For we know not what we should pray for as we ought. Our knowledge is clearly limited. And our infirmity adds to that limit within our knowledge. We're not the only ones that that were ignorant. Even the disciples are asking Jesus, Lord, how shall we pray? And he explained to them the manner of how you should pray. Our ignorance of how to pray is a reason we are helped of the Spirit of God. Likewise, the Spirit also helpeth our infirmities. Why? Because we know not how we should pray for as we ought. There's a few examples of, of why... We struggle and why we are ignorant of it. One of them is that we're not competent judges of our own condition. We're not competent judges of our own condition. Romans 7.7 7 says, I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. We are ignorant of our own condition. We're also short-sighted. When you think of the Israelites and they were, were travelling with, um, with Moses and in the book of Numbers, they said, Moreover thou hast not brought us into a land that floweth with milk and honey. Or given us an inheritance of fields and vineyards. What was their problem? Well, they still had 40 years of journey before they actually got to the promised land. They're short-sighted. Matthew Henry had a really interesting idea. He spoke about uh, us being like children. We always want to take the fruit before it ripens. We want to take that fruit before it ripens. And that's a lot that we're like. We're we're, we're short-sighted. We're also limited by unrepentant sin. In Isaiah 59, the text says this, it says, Behold, the Lord's hand is not shortened, that it cannot save. Neither his ear heavy, that he cannot hear. But your iniquities have separated you and your God, and your sins have hid his face from you, that he will not hear. So we know that unrepentant sin also limits our ability to pray. Infirmity is found also by dishonour toward our spouse. And it's specifically directed towards the gentlemen here in First Peter chapter seven. It says, "Likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honour unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel, and as being heirs together of the grace of life, that your prayers be not hindered." Now, by extension, this continues on through Scripture with relating to all who we are to give honour to. The focus is often even on parents. It doesn't mean you younger ones; it also means you older ones. Those who have parents still alive, we are still to honour our parents. This is something that's continuous for us for all of our lives. We're also limited as we regard iniquity. Psalm 66 says that if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear me. Uh, This can include covetousness, envy, pride, presumption. Anything that you regard within your heart, the Lord will not hear We're ignorant about that which is good for us. In Ecclesiastes it says, For who knoweth what is good for a man in this life, all the days of his vain life which he spendeth as a shadow? or Who can tell a man that shall be after him under the sun? We're ignorant even of that which is good for us. And we often focus on our lusts. James chapter 4 says, Ye ask and receive not, because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. These are just some of the infirmities that we struggle with, but you've got distraction when you're praying. There's another one that makes it very difficult. We've got a wandering mind when we pray. I don't know if that's ever, if you've ever struggled with that, but I certainly have, you know. Um, our lack of faith helps us, makes us struggle in our prayer life. Sleepiness or weariness. I have fallen asleep while I prayed. And uh, that's a bit embarrassing, you know. Sort of stop mid-sentence. With a snore, it's, it, it's, not, it's not good, but it does happen. Oh, you know, sleepiness, weariness, also bitterness in heart. We've got a passage in Matthew, He says, Therefore, if thou bring thy gift unto the altar, and there rememberest that thy brother hath ought against thee, leave there thy gift before the altar, and go thy way first, and be reconciled to thy brother, and then come and offer thy gift. How many of you struggle with bitterness within your heart while you're praying? When you bow your heart before the Lord, yet what's continually flowing through your mind is someone that you've got a grievance with. It happens again. Bitterness within our heart also makes it difficult to pray. This is why the text says we know not what we should pray for as we ought. But this helper, this helper, who knows what we should pray for and is perfectly in line with the will of God in verse 27, also maketh intercession for us with groanings that cannot be uttered. It's difficult to underestimate the vital role that intercession plays with regards to the benefit to all who receive it. We think about family members who don't know God. Um... How will they come to know Him without you interceding in their prayer? Think, think for a moment of the difficulty that we have with those that are around us. Again, we're speaking about loved ones, we're speaking about friends, we're speaking about family, speaking about those who won't know God. It's not necessary that they haven't heard of God, but they won't come to Him. The Bible says that the fool that has said in his heart, there is no God, he's willingly ignorant. Those who profess themselves to be wise have in fact become fools. Their denial of that which the heavens declare concerning the glory of God. They fail to see that from the invisible things of Him, from the creation of the world are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made. We know and believe that through faith, the worlds were framed by the word of God. So that the things which are seen were not made of the things which do appear. How amazing is that? We've got God speaking about the material elements of the universe from a molecular level. From a molecular level. The things which are seen were not made of things which do appear. Isn't that incredible? thousands of years before the atom was discovered um, and before subatomic molecular physics was even a science, we have in Scripture an understanding that everything which, which appears, everything that, we, everything that we see, is not made from that which appears. It's incredible to think of. And this is found in Scripture. But they're ignorant, and often willingly so. The Bible tells us that light has come into the world but men love darkness rather than light. Why? Because their deeds are evil. That's why they're ignorant. And how are they going to be benefited without intercession? How? How are they going to come to the Lord without you praying? You know, I've, I've seen it, I see it all the time, and it and it and I, I and I'm often so amazed. You know, we just heard about Ilya and how a child is born, you know? And just the, just the whole idea of of a child being born, a life, a new life. You know, it, it should blow away every doctor, every gynecologist, every midwife, anybody that who has a hand in, in watching this come to be. It should absolutely blow their mind. And you know what? A veil is put in front of their eyes. How? How can they be so blind? Because they're willingly so. They're Willingly so. How are they going to come to the knowledge of the Lord without you intervening? And in just this way, the Spirit intervenes for us in the same way. There's nothing unreasonable with what we see here in the text. The lost need to be interceded who are far from God. And we who are near to God need to be interceded for, due to our own infirmities, by he who is one with God nothing nothing wrong with the text the text is perfectly clear on what it says a third point that i have is inclination known inclination known and it's in verse 27 and it says he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of god to the christian there's nothing greater than to know that the lord knows all that is in our hearts I I recall in, um, in my darkest trials of sin, I was, I was far too ashamed to come to God. Um, and it was while I was a Christian. And, and I, honestly, I, I see that passage where they go into the mountains and say rocks fall on us. Oh, that's how I felt. That's how I felt. I didn't want to come to God in prayer. I was far too ashamed. How can I go to God in prayer for something that I continually repent of, you know, that I struggled with? And the things that I was struggling with, I didn't want to bring to the Lord, you know? I only just repented the day before or an hour before or whenever, you know? And yet I find myself on my knees before my Lord because of the same affliction that I put myself through, okay? And and it's that trial and that struggle that prevented me from prayer. Sin, sin actually is that within a Christian that answers the prayerlessness. Sin stops us from prayer, from praying. We don't want to come to the Lord. But you know what? Something changed. Because while I was a Christian, even though I was struggling with sin, I was actually, part of me was was almost wishing the days that I wasn't saved. Right? That's, That's how bad I got. Right, I, I, I longed for those days where I could be in sin like a pig in mud, like it would be my everyday thing. I would, I would relish it. It was a friend of mine, Eddie, in sin, walking arm in arm. You know, it was fantastic for me. So I thought, I thought it was. I would excuse it. Um, I would excuse it in others. Uh, I hated the idea of feeling judged, and I always felt judged by anybody who was not in the same sin and condition that I was in. It's interesting because that's the same problem that most people have today. Don't judge me, don't judge me. Always feeling judged. All the time feeling judged. Don't judge me. Well, hang on, you're judging me. How am I judging you? Well, you're judging me thinking that I'm judging you. They don't understand, you know what I mean? But everybody judges, everybody discerns, you know. But it's the feeling of conviction within their own hearts because of their own malady, because of their own sin. And, and just when I thought about how good that was, I also forgot how blessing those precious times are with the Lord, knowing that I have hope. See, I desire righteousness. Righteousness within me is my heart's desire. That's what I want. And then it dawned on me that the Lord knows my heart. The Lord knows my heart. See, to the Christian, God knowing his heart is a joy to him, because he knows that that, God knows that the least thing for a Christian to do is to sin. He doesn't want to. He wants righteousness. He desires holiness. But for the lost, for the unsaved, God knowing their heart is a frightening thought. God knowing their heart is a frightening thought. So, he that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit. See, the inclination of my heart was toward righteousness. My heart was troubled at my sin and didn't rejoice in it. The problem, however, is if you're sitting here and you've actually got a slight concern that God knows your heart and if that worries you and troubles you, there's a very strong chance you're not saved and you don't know the Lord. Prayerlessness is an evidence of that also. Let me explain just something quickly with regards to prayerlessness and the saved and the lost. Okay, God's given to those who are his, the spirit of grace and supplications, it tells us in Zechariah chapter 12. It's as natural for a Christian to pray as it is to eat. It's that natural. We feel the compulsion to eat. We feel the compulsion to pray. We feel the hunger pangs to eat. We feel the desire to pray. Now we can ignore that and put that aside, but it's always there. There's always the desire to pray and there's always the recognition, I haven't prayed, right, within a Christian. That doesn't exist in those who are not saved. That doesn't exist. It's not a part of them. The prayerlessness of the saved, look, just as any misdeed that you might have toward a loved one, anything that you do wrong to someone that has a relationship with you um, makes you want to avoid them. Early in our married life, um, Maria and I would occasionally have a bit of a tiff. Little, just a little argument, all right? And and I know that it was never my fault. <laughs> oh, true, right? It was it, never my fault. All right, it was always her fault. And if she would recognize her sin, and I did use "sin" as a two-syllable word, "sinna," okay, if she would recognize and identify her sin then all would be good, right? And you know what? Blown if I was going to open my mouth first. No way was I going to talk, all right? But you see, as any relationship, like the relationship we have with the Lord, uh, you, you've got constant opportunity. I see her in the morning. Walk away. I see her at lunchtime. Walk away. Dinner time. And I would not say a word. No way am I gonna break my silence. I'm not talking to you. Then it's bedtime, and as far as I was concerned, it can stay that way because I was angry. But you see, within me, I was troubled by it, and you can see the anguish on my face. I was angry, and I was really, really upset. Okay, but Maria, hey, coasting, no problem whatsoever. And I thought, you know, I thought, you know, I'm Italian, I'm hard-headed, <laughs> All right? But I forgot, she's a woman. <laughs> <laughs> the amazing thing was, more often than not, it was Maria that made the first move. It was Maria that would come to me to bridge the gap. And instead of feeling chuffed, that, you know, I didn't give in, I actually felt ashamed. I actually felt ashamed. You know, it shouldn't have been Maria. You know, when it comes to an argument or a problem in a physical relationship, it's always one person or the other or both that are involved in it. When it comes to our relationship with God, it's never God. (laughs) Sorry to say, it's never his fault. It's never his fault. But I wanted you to get a picture of an understanding of the relationship that we have with God. You see, we always have a relationship with Him. He's always there. And just as I'd be prompted by seeing my wife in the morning, in the afternoon, in the evening, daily and moment by moment, I am in a relationship with God. I can't get away from it. Okay? And I can choose not to pray. But that doesn't do me any good. So we're constantly prompted to go back to the Lord in prayer, to repent of our sin and to ask him for for the forgiveness that we might have a tuned relationship, a beautifully harmonised relationship, the two of us together. And him knowing my heart added to that benefit. Him knowing that I don't desire to sin added to the ease in which I would come to the Lord in prayer. But the lost are not so. The lost are not so prayerlessness of the lost, if you have no inclination to pray, if you've never really felt the desire to do so, nor think that it really matters, you are none of His. You are not His. You are not saved. It's impossible for someone who has no desire to pray to actually know the Lord. It's not possible, according to Scripture. The greatest desire of the Spirit of God is to intercede for you. And as He does to save you, so He does to benefit you. And this is what it's like to walk in the Spirit. If so, be the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. As a Christian, the Spirit of Christ always moves and prompts you toward that which is good, just as He convicts you in that which is bad. Scripture teaches that we are to examine ourselves whether we be in the faith. It warns a number of times. Examine yourself whether you be in the faith. Why? Because it's so dangerous. Because if you don't know the Lord, your eternity is lost. It means condemnation before God in judgment, finding yourself in hell for all eternity. Do you think the stakes are high? I mean, really, do you think the stakes are high? You know what? I get the impression that the lost don't really think the stakes are high. They don't think it's a real problem. I don't want you to try and justify or argue the simple truth. If there is no inclination to pray, then there is no knowledge of the Lord. Okay. If you're never inclined to pray, you cannot be saved. This is both a warning to you and it's also an opportunity to make your calling and election sure. And the only way you can do that, guess how? Do you know how you can make your calling and election sure? By petitioning God through prayer. It's that which saves you, that which saves you also sustains you. That which saves you also sustains you. And we also rejoice in prayer. The fourth point, an intervention of a an intervention of a He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. And this is just a short point for our consideration here, okay? So praying in accordance to the will of God is often a hit-miss event for the Christian, you know? Um, In order to know the will of God, you have to know the Word of God. Okay, It's impossible to know the will of God without knowing the Word of God. Because in knowing the Word of God, you come to know the character of God. You come to know what He sees as right, what He sees as wrong, what He understands as good, what He understands as evil. You come to understand these things, and once you understand these things, then you can pray according to His will. It won't take much For you to think to yourself, all right, Lord, I'm looking at a job right now and it's in a, um, uh, I'm going to be a manager of a bottle shop, Mm -hmm. you know. Look, you, you might, seriously, you might laugh, but I can guarantee you one thing, 100%, there are many, many of our Christian brethren who will excuse putting themselves in a position where they're actually selling vice to people. And they will excuse it. They'll say things like, and I've heard it recently, um, oh, give me the opportunity to share the gospel with these people. Garbage. They won't be sharing the gospel with them. If they don't know the will of God, how can they can be concerned about the will of God? Okay? So, but at the same time, the Lord's not necessarily going to say, all right, I want you to go into this shop and I want you to ask for a job there specifically, because that's where I want you. No, the Lord's going to give you a broad range of things where... You know, whatever your desire is to be able to move into, you can. So knowing the will of God is vitally important. And it also helps you with your time of prayer. And it's the greatest blessing to know the will of God. One of the things that troubled me the most when I was with my Christian uh, charismatic brethren for 10 or 11 years is well, I would often go to their, uh, to their prayer meetings and... Um, And they they didn't know the Bible. They never really read the Bible. Um, They never really were taught the Bible. So the scriptures were really, really opened. Um, And as a consequence of that, when they prayed, they trusted in their feelings, their emotions and the like, and they would demand of God certain things. They would demand this and demand that. They would ask to bind this and bind that. and And they would then pray in ways that would do nothing more than feed their own lusts. The entire time that they're praying, the word of God is closed in front of them. How can you know the will of God? You've got to trust in your emotions and your feelings. When you're afflicted, it's not a problem to pray. James actually said, is any among you afflicted? Let him pray. Let him pray. But we've got another problem. If you turn your Bibles to James chapter 4, please. James chapter 4. There's another reason why our prayers go unanswered. And this is very, very typical of our, as I said, our our Pentecostal charismatic brethren who are, um, I'm not sure how they're concerned they are with the lost. I'm not sure of that. I know that some of them definitely have a heart. Don't get me wrong, a lot of these people are actually saved. They have a yearning and a desire for the truth of God. But a lot of the time that gets mixed up with their own fleshly lust. James chapter 4, verses 1 to 3, have a look at this. It says... From whence come wars and fightings among you? Come they not hence, even of your lusts that war in your members? Ye lust and have not. Ye kill and desire to have and cannot obtain. Ye fight and war, yet ye have not because ye ask not. Ye ask and receive not because ye ask amiss, that ye may consume it upon your lusts. This is perhaps more common today than it's ever been. It's certain that a prayer of this sort cannot be answered. God knows what is good for us. And like any parent, our desire and God's desire is the best for His children. The Bible says, He that searcheth the hearts knoweth what is the mind of the Spirit, because he maketh intercession for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit never, ever intercedes without the will of God. Never does. And when you pray, he's there praying with you, he's interceding with you on your behalf, within your heart, on earth. Isn't it amazing when you think about it? We have the Lord Jesus Christ interceding for us in heaven. He's with the Father at the right hand of God making intercession continually for us. Why? He's continually making intercession for our souls, okay? And here we have the Spirit of God on earth interceding for us. With respect to our petitions. Like a notary, he brings the indictment to the Lord and he presents it to God. This is what he does, the Spirit of God. So both of them are in the face of the Father. Both the Son and the Spirit of God. One from heaven, the other on earth. What an incredible picture. What an incredible picture. And that's why, when you look at all this, that's why we can get into that marvellous portion from, uh, from verse 28 in this text. And which we will start doing next time we come together. The, the Christian never prays alone. So as the Spirit of God convicts the heart and compels us to pray, so too does He lead us to be concerned for prayer in accordance with God's will. My last point this morning. Turn your Bibles to Job, chapter 42. So Job is before the book of Psalms. And we're looking at the last chapter of Job. Last chapter of Job. And we're going to be taking our text from the first verse. In the middle of your Bible, roughly. It's what's known as the beginning of the wisdom text in Scripture. We've got five of them. We've got five of them in the Bible. The first lot are all historical. So we've got 17 historical books before the book of Job. Then we have five Poetic or wisdom literature, speaking about the heart of man. We'll notice that the first seventeen are historical books, all surrounding a nation and a people. But these wisdom portions of text are about the heart, and they concern themselves with the individual. Okay, and that's the beginning of it. We have the book of Job. Job chapter forty-two. At this point, we have um, we have Job's already gone through all his difficulties. He's gone through all his trials. He's gone through the struggles with his, with his mates. He's tried to give uh, a reasonable account for the state that he's in, uh, but he's started running into a little bit of error. Elihu, the godly one that was there, began in, verse, in chapter 38, and he started expounding to Job, what's the problem with the current situation? He saw it from a different perspective. And then we have God that's spoken, and God then condemned Job in one particular sense and gave a good rationale. Sorry, that was from chapter 38. And then here at the end, Job answered the Lord and said, I know that thou canst do everything and that no thought can be withholden from thee. Who is he that hideth counsel without knowledge? Therefore have I uttered that I understood not things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. In this passage we see Job ignorant of God now being newly newly informed. So Job's ignorance of God is newly informed. Have a look. It says, therefore, have I uttered that I understood not. He, He demonstrates his ignorance, but now newly informed. His mind's deliberations are known of God. Have a look at the text. And that no thought can be withholden from thee. We see also that the will of God is recognized. Who is he that kind of counsel without knowledge? The will of God is recognized there. We see the power of God is realized. I know that thou canst do everything. And finally, an enlightening of the glory of God. Things too wonderful for me, which I knew not. What an incredible account of Job. We know that Job, then the book of Job, is one of the greatest historical accounts that we have in Scripture. It focuses on the life of one man, one individual. His trials, his turmoils, his pains, his sufferings and his ultimate redemption and blessing. The, event of Job, the events of Job occurred under the watchful eye of God who knew him intimately, even better than Job knew himself. And he loved him. Though Job truly struggled, God never left him. Though Job thought himself to be judged by God wrongly, And to be suffering as a result, God judged him rightly and proved the point he set out to prove. And what was that? That there was at that time none more righteous than Job in all the earth. That was Job. We who have hope are not immune to going through diverse sufferings, brethren. We're not immune to it. We're not immune to it. Some come upon us and some we bring upon ourselves. But suffering in one way or another is inevitable as we live our lives. The difficulties that we go through are inevitable as we live our lives. And the longer we live, the more chances there are that we're going to go through struggling. Listen to this. I'll just read this. You don't have to turn there. It's in Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Many of you know it. To everything there is a season and a time to every purpose under heaven. A time to be born and a time to die. A time to plant and a time to pluck up that which is planted. A time to kill and a time to heal. A time to break down and a time to build up. A time to weep and a time to laugh. A time to mourn and a time to dance. A time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones together. A time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing. A time to get and a time to lose. A time to keep and a time to cast away. A time to rend and a time to sow. A time to keep silence and a time to speak. A time to love and a time to hate. A time of peace and a time of war. Yet we have hope. Yet we have hope. The Spirit of God is with us. We can run the race with patience. Counting it all joy when we go through diverse temptations. But the Bible also speaks about those without hope. And just for a moment I want to concentrate on that. There are those who have no hope, as we're encouraged by Scripture. So too, we're we reminded that some are without hope in the world. In First Thessalonians chapter four thirteen, the Apostle Paul says to us, "But I would not have you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning them which are asleep; that is, concerning those which have died in Christ, that you sorrow not even as others with which have no hope." Last week, last week it was reported. That, um, that eight people a week take their own lives. Oh, sorry, eight people every day. Eight people every single day take their own lives. In the 10 years from 2004 to 2014, 19,995 people took their lives, according to the Australian Bureau of Statistics. Nearly 20,000 people. In 2014 alone... 2,864 people moved themselves into eternity. 2,160 were men. It's not that women struggle less with their lives, it's that men seem to be a little bit more efficient at taking it. Another report goes on to say the reasons for suicide, particularly the increase among young people 15 to 24 years old, they say is, and i quote, complex and not understood. Ultimately, however, I believe that the reason is not complicated. They have no hope. They have no hope. I mentioned last week that hope is the motivator of life. It's that which keeps you going when you're going through the dark times, when you're going through the difficulties. It's hope. It's hope that does that. Depression strives in a state of hopelessness. It's the fuel that drives it. It's the food that feeds it. But hope starves depression. It starves. Sorrow not even as others which have no hope. See, we believe that feeding our lusts brings hope. We believe that personally. And you know what? The world encourages and markets it as a promise that it will deliver. Feed your lusts. Do the things that you want to do. Do whatever you want to do. Send to your heart's content. But our heart is never content. Our heart is never content. The world markets it. We desire it. One feeds off the other as an incredible roller coaster spiral. that just keeps going round and around. It's a self-perpetuating machine is what it does. Until ultimately reality kicks in. We we step out in faith into thin air thinking that all our lusts and our desires are going to give us joy and fulfilment within our lives. But you know what? Reality is that solid, inflexible bottom upon which our leap into thin air ends. It ends there. And some find it early, some find it later. Last year, a father I know... And I mentioned to, to you at the time, uh, he took his own life. He was, he was discovered by his son in, 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 the, um, in the business that they were running. He took his own life because the business at the time was taking less than his debts could uh, be settled with. In other words, it was taking I understood it was taking between ten to $15,000 a week. And that sounds like a lot, but in comparison to the debt that he had, it was nowhere, well, nowhere near enough. Now, we'd been at this restaurant, we'd been there... A number of years earlier, to celebrate Maria's father's 70th it was your 70th, yeah, 70th uh, birthday. We were there, and it was quiet as. It was really, really quiet. I didn't know the, the family. I don't know them at all. I know them only through, through my brother-in-law. Um, but uh, he was in his mid-50s. He realized that he was going to lose everything. His son uh, tried to provide some ideas. That would help him get out of it, but his father wouldn't hear of him. And in the end, we discovered last year, he was found hanging by his son. By his son, the same son. Well, this week I discovered that the same business, now taken over by the son, has hit almost $100,000 in weekly sales. Weekly sales. And all the debts are cleared. A problem with hopelessness is that we don't see the light at the end of the tunnel. That's probably the simplest way of describing it, okay? Reality is there is always a light at the end of the tunnel, particularly if you are in Christ. There is always a light there. But you know what? There might be a bend in the tunnel and you can't see it. That's the state of this individual. He didn't see the light at the end of that tunnel. And that was only reflecting the things which he had. You see, he believed that his life consists of the things that he possesses. What did Jesus say? He says, Take heed and beware of covetousness. For a man's life consisteth not in the abundance of the things which he possesseth. Okay? But when we think possessions equal life, one can be easily exchanged for the other. possessions. It's not what you have that makes you who you are. 20,000 people believed there is no hope. 20,000 people believed there is no God. 20,000 people who believed they will rest in peace. 20,000 people who would imagine there is no heaven, no hell below us, above us only sky. Twenty thousand people who took their own lives for a lie. The Christian, however, ought to pray, and not faint. I'm going to give you a bunch of texts here to encourage you. I'm not going to turn to them. I can't. There's a number of them in the here, but I would like you, if you can, to take some notes, just with regards to the references. And I'm going to be closing with this portion. As an encouragement to us, the Christian ought to pray and not faint. Luke chapter 18, verse 1. Luke 18, verse 1. Galatians 6, verse 9, tells us to not be weary in well-doing. For in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Hebrews chapter 12, verses 11 to 12. Says, Now the chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous. Now, no chastening for the present seemeth to be joyous, but grievous. Nevertheless, afterward it yieldeth the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Wherefore, lift up the hands which hang down, and the feeble knees. Jonah, while in the depths that closed about him as he was cast into the deep, And the billows and the waves that passed over him and the weeds that wrapped around his head as he went down to the bottoms of the mountains. He describes his torment as in the belly of hell. Yet it was here that he lifted up his voice to God. Jonah chapter 2 verse 7. He says, When my soul fainted within me, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came in unto thee, into thine holy temple. They that observe lying vanities forsake their own mercy. But I will sacrifice unto thee with the voice of thanksgiving. I will pay that that I have vowed. Salvation is of the Lord. Of the Lord. Of no other. Of no other. Of the Lord. Now we've got false ideas and false religious systems that have actually changed their own ideas. Krishna is now considered as Lord and Christ. All right. Buddha is considered Lord and God. There is a distinction. It is the Lord. It's speaking about the only one, the one in heaven, God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. There is none other here. Salvation is of the Lord and it's not of yourself. It's of the Lord and it's not of your possessions. It's of the Lord and it's not your spouse. It's the Lord and it's not your, 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 your significant other. It's the Lord. It's not your business. It's the Lord. It's not what you think will give you contentment in life. It's the Lord. It's the Lord. Our Lord has given to us an exam- as an example of one who endured. In Hebrews chapter 12, verse 3. For consider him that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. When the Lord's own soul was troubled, how did he respond? In John chapter 12, twelve twenty seven, 27, he says, Now is my soul troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this cause came I unto this hour. Father, glorify thy name. What was the consideration of Jesus Christ? It was to glorify the Father. What's your consideration to glorify God? That's yours. Philippians 4:6-7 tells us to be careful for nothing. Let's be full of care. Careful, full of care. Worried. Don't be worried. Be careful for nothing but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving let your requests be made known unto God. And the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and minds through Christ. Isaiah 26 speaking of the promise of God saying thou wilt keep him in perfect peace whose mind is stayed on thee. Why? Because he trusteth in thee. Isaiah chapter 40, 31 informs us that they that wait upon the Lord. I love this text. Some of you know what I'm going to say. What the text says They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Last two verses Psalm 27, verse 14 Wait on the Lord. Be of good courage. He shall strengthen thine heart. Wait, I say, on the Lord. And the last verse is one of my favourites. And I'm only going to say a short part of it. Psalm chapter 46, verse 10, tells us to be still and know that I am God. Though our reason might fail, faith in Christ cannot. Our reason is based on subjectivity. Faith in Christ is based on that which is certain. There is never a time that we ought to faint. We are never isolated in our trials. We are never alone in our prayer. We are not praying to some impersonal force, but to God. And you know what? We know him. So to the Christian, I'm just going to give you this quote by Thomas Manton. He quoted this in 1873. He says, we have no other way to relieve ourselves in any distress, but by serious addresses to God. This is the means appointed by God to procure comfort to the distressed mind. Safety to those that are in danger. Relief to them that are in want. Strength to them that are in weakness. In short, the only means for obtaining good and removing evil, whether temptations, dangers, enemies, sins, sorrows, fears, cares, poverty, shame, sickness. God is our only help against all these. And prayer is the means to obtain relief from Him. They all grace... And strength and the greatest mercies that we desire and stand in need of. The Christian never prays alone. We never pray alone. To the lost. To the lost. Believe the gospel. Believe the gospel. And repent of sin. Turn to God. He is the source of all hope. And to each one of you that are here... In the, in the back of the church we've got tracts we've got tracts they have scripture verses on them 20,000 people in 10 years took their own lives some you would have walked past some you would have sat next to in, in a train or in a bus you would have caught a taxi maybe with one you might be sitting in a meeting with one and you don't even have a clue that his plan is to finish that meeting, to finish that day and at the end of the day to finish his life. You don't have a clue. We have tracts, simple gospel tracts. Just one can extend hope. Just one, given out of love, can save a life and save a soul from death. There is no peace to them that take their own lives. There isn't any. They believe that there is. And we have that anagram rest in peace, RIP. It's false. It's a lie. Those who take their own life to avoid the trials of this world enter into torment for eternity. There is no good there. We have tracts. Please, empty them. Empty the shelves there. We'll replenish them. The church will replenish them. We'll put more there to replace those ones, but if you take them, give them. Give them out. Her others find that hope. We need to, guys. This isn't a rehearsal, you know? This isn't a rehearsal. We're not going to be coming back next life. We have this life and this life only. 20,000 people were without hope. You who have hope, share it. Let's pray. Father, we come to you, dear Lord, knowing, dear Father, that we have a joy and a hope in eternity that we with patience wait for. We know, dear Father, when we bend our knee to pray, it's not us alone, but your spirit that prays within us with groanings that cannot be uttered, praying always according to the will of God. Father, we fail in so many things. And we repent of our own lusts and our own desires and our own chasing after the things of this world which will pass away. And I ask you, dear Lord, please, please forgive us for it. And I pray, dear Father, that if there is even one in this congregation that has convicted, dear Father, of their own sin, that they will, dear Lord, not rest until they rest in you. I pray, dear Father, that they would have the courage and the strength to stand up and ask dear Lord to be saved that they would plead with you they can do this on their own dear Father I know but even if they desire to help dear Father any one of us that are here that are saved and that know Christ I would not like nothing more than to lead them into that prayer that would save their soul I pray dear Father stir them up and stir us up dear Father as those brethren of yours those that know you that we would be convicted within our own hearts for our own complacency. And I pray, dear Lord, that we would open our eyes to the misery around us and that we would share the light of Christ. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus Christ. Be with us, dear Father. Let our speech, dear Lord, be only of you and of those things which exhort and encourage one another. (coughs) We thank you, Jesus Christ. Amen.